0: trigger warning this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief loss and the impact that losing a loved one to suicide can have which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting so please listen with caution Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Events, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. When it comes to incels, I've already spoken to previous Just Checking In podcast, William Costello, about incels and incel culture. But in this week's episode, I'm checking in with a female guest who is just as ensconced in breaking down the stigmas that incels face, giving them a voice, and talking about the myths that mainstream society has about them. Her name is Nama Cates. She is a filmmaker, writer, writer, Musician and the founder of the Incel Project podcast. The Incel Project takes a deep dive into the involuntary celibate community. I check in with Nama about her writing journey, the challenges she faced as an actor in her past and why she chose to cover a topic like inceldom, which is usually the reserve of male academics. We also discuss the struggles she faced fitting in at school as a child and teenager, loneliness, self-worth and the impact that losing her mother to suicide had on her when she was just aged 17. The taboo around suicide death is still incredibly high, and we explore how that taboo manifested in her family, the lack of mental health support Nama had after her mother died, and how it shaped her into the woman that she is today. So this is how my conversation with Nama Cates went. <music> Nama Cates, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. We've finally got this sorted. We've finally got this in the um, in the diary after a few cancellations and rescheduling from both our ends. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. It's a real privilege to be chatting with someone who cares so passionately about the mental health of a lot of incredibly marginalised and, let's face it, distressed men, I would say. First off, how are you? How are things?
1: I'm doing pretty well, thank you for asking. As you know, I had a bit of a busy couple of weeks <laughs> over the last couple of weeks as a result of the climate situation but you know everything's everything's good now.
0: Yeah we'll get into the reason why you became a sort of media darling for about two and a half weeks. You still are to some extent but yeah a media darling specifically for about two weeks. Can you just give the listeners a bit of context about how that's been I guess for your own profile really like how is it, has it been a bit of a whirlwind or have you sort of just taken it in your stride?
1: Well I guess maybe both it's been a whirlwind (laughs) and I've taken it in stride I like to think it's sad to say this and it sounds very cynical but unfortunately things like that happening are good for business when you're in this business.
0: Mm, Exactly I didn't want this pod to just to be about the incel project number as I'm sure you get asked about it all the time but I wanted to talk about your entire journey holistically so without further ado shall we start the show? Let's start the pod by talking about your writing journey, Nama. But before we discuss writing, I want to just map out how the journey started for the listeners because it wasn't specifically where you started, was it? Because you did a degree in computer science first and then you moved into the arts and entertainment where you worked as an actor and musical performer. So can you tell me about that journey in particular and then how it transitioned into writing and then more of behind-the-scenes work?
1: Sure. Well, I think maybe... It did start with writing. When I was in, in high school growing up and things like that, I loved reading, I loved writing. I didn't really think about what I wanted to be when I grew up, whether that would be something to do with the arts or with writing, but it was always just a passion for me. But you know, I wanted to go the more practical route with schooling. I was also always very interested in computers and the internet, still am. Hmm part of the reason i'm drawn to what i I talk about on my show so you know i studied that and i studied it in new york city and living in new york was definitely maybe not an ideal place to go to school because there's so much there to distract you that seems a lot more interesting and so while i was living there and in school i became involved with all kinds of artistic endeavors i tried Many of them, I think maybe, I don't even know if this is accurate, but I think I remember when I was still 20 years old or something like that, I did write a couple pieces for some outlet or other online. And I was very drawn to the theater. noise always had been, always have been. I love musical theater, still do. I was in New York City, so I started acting. I took classes. Those were amazing. And that was the thing that stuck, I would say, of the various Media that one could pursue artistically. Acting kind of took hold first and it was very exciting to do in New York City. And so I started to get a little bit of success in it, just really small things here and there, some theater, some off, off Broadway. And eventually I got an agent, and the agent probably wisely, if one wants to pursue acting, pointed me in the direction of television and film and I started to do that and that's where I would say I started to get some success where I was actually making money and I actually flew to Los Angeles once and did an audition for a television show like a big network tv show and I got that and you know those pay very well and eventually I I moved to Los Angeles and Then I realized that acting was a very small part of acting. Acting, the art was a very small part of acting, the profession. And especially with television and film, there's a lot of hurry up and wait, a lot of sitting around, a lot of auditions, a lot of just move your hand again, just so 18 times so (laughs) we can get that shot. (laughs) And you are at the mercy of whatever part you get. So, if your interest isn't being famous or making money solely and is also expressing and art, then you might not be doing that much of that Mm. and making a living as an actor. So I kept doing it and I ended up doing some films and some more TV, but I was getting very bored of it, very frustrated with the lack of agency one has as an actor and I don't know exactly how, but I became interested in, in music again. Again, this was something that I had always loved doing as a child. And I, I took piano and I played piano and I started writing songs and I was in LA very lonely and or maybe a little bit lacking in direction, not really feeling like I fit into Hollywood into that scene. Mm. And so writing music became an outlet for me and I started to do that. I had a band, I led a band, which was a lot of fun, some jazz musicians and meeting people, you know, in Los Angeles, I started doing music for commercials and things like that, that was a good way to make a living. while I was doing that, I also started writing again a little bit more because I was writing music and I was also doing these ad jingles and found that writing ad copy was another good income stream for me. And I really liked doing that, but for some reason, I still didn't really consider it that I was a writer. I didn't see myself that way. Doing all of that, I just realized one thing was that I wanted to have more agency as a creative. And since my background was in film, as an actor, I I also directed a couple films and co-produced and even wrote a couple (laughs) that were made and really enjoyed that and still didn't really see myself as a writer, professionally for some reason, though I was beginning to realize that that was the common thread Mm. between all the different things that I did. It was writing, it was telling stories, and that writing really is the part that I love the most. So I had this sort of circuitous path from that then to podcasting, which is what I do now and also write. And that's kind of the story Mm. that kind of brings us up
0: to the the present. Mm. You were working on a feature film when you stumbled upon podcasts or the concept of podcasts, I guess. How did that discovery change your perspective on the way that you approach storytelling itself?
1: Well, I love podcasts. (laughs) I still do. I was spending a lot of time editing, a lot of time up late all hours, and I was just binging one podcast after another. And it's almost like reading, you mm. know? A great medium for storytelling. And you know, it's like reading, but you can do it while you're doing other things. Yeah. So you don't have to just sit down and read a book, a hard cover physical book, which is so rare now anyway. I don't like reading off of the Kindle or the computer. I can't yeah, do it. Do it's paper it, but, books. Um, I
0: have to have the escapism, yeah.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I was just consuming so much, so many of these podcasts and Just, I think, subconsciously realizing that this medium excites me. The constraints of it excite me. The constraints of telling a story only through audio was thrilling. And in some ways, you know, every, I would say every medium has its advantages and its disadvantages and the things that make it more difficult and the things that make it easier. And I think that podcasts are something like a combination of writing and Hosting or being like a, a personality, rather, but there's also a journalistic aspect mm. because you are seeking out other people to tell the story. And there are some podcasts that do fiction type things.
0: Um, a more money.
1: Those aren't really <laughs> there's my more favorites. Money behind those. Yeah. <laughs> there are some like the Wondery ones. You know, there, there are some of these that do, but they're not my favorites. So I think it's the journalism aspect of the podcast that I really like that, you know, who better to tell some of these stories than the people that actually experienced them. And then when you're done with that content, you can find the experts, subject matter experts to kind of weigh in and do an analysis. One podcast that Was my favorite, I would say, was one called Missing Maura Murray. It was just about this one case of this woman who went missing in uh, Massachusetts or New Hampshire, rather. She's from Massachusetts. That podcast, I found, I don't know how it was recommended to me, but it was one case and it went on just forever. And it was endlessly fascinating for me. So I thought, you know, true crime, I'm basic in that sense. I like true crime. I like that genre. I also like the ones about psychology and things like that. But the the true crime, you know, it scratches a different itch. So I was really enjoying that one. I started communicating with the creators of it, Tim Polari and Lancer and And that's another thing about podcasts too. They're productions that are more intimate. They're oftentimes podcasters themselves are kind of accessible through social media. That's this whole other part of it that I enjoy so I actually got in touch with them and started talking with them and all of this kind of happened in in tandem as I was aware of this topic that I cover now and becoming more interested in journalism and true crime speaking to the creators and yeah I I still I just think it's a great medium I mean I think another thing about it that I didn't really mention was was that was how intimate it is how accessible it is how oftentimes there's a, a community really built around the podcast where people that are fans of it actually talk to each other and discuss the episodes with the creators. That's kind of something unique about it. It's very inexpensive to make. It's another thing sort of. That's a pro and a con. That's a pro
0: and a con for sure. (laughs) Everyone can do it but also anyone can do it.
1: (laughs) Right and everyone does do it and you know the market becomes saturated. It's just kind of what happens when you have new technologies and there's kind of maybe a a bubble with this whole content Mm. creation thing right now.
0: Let's talk about the topic that you cover now, Nama, which is the incel project. So what sparked your interest for diving into this topic and can you explain the definition of what an incel is for listeners who don't know?
1: So an incel is an involuntary celibate. It is the neologism for that and It has a history that, you know, I don't think I need to get into here, the term and all of that. I cover a lot of that on my pod and sort of everywhere. So I appreciate you're not uh, insisting on that. Basically, it's a, a person who is involuntarily celibate. They're not in a romantic or sexual relationship despite wanting one. And these are usually men. These are usually younger men. And there's also kind of a community that's developed of these young men, it has its own very strange culture. It's seen by many people now as an extremist group. People who are only marginally aware of the term kind of just use it as a pejorative sometimes. It's become something that has been associated with terrorism and Mm. and mass shootings, as we've seen recently. And that association is understandable because every one of these events is... Tragic and horrifying. Is it true painful. though? I don't think so. And personally. why is that? Why is it? Why is
0: it not true in your perspective?
1: Well, because I talked to so many incels, <laughs> and <laughs> saying that the overwhelming majority of them aren't violent is an understatement. Even though there have been attacks associated with incels to varying degrees of accuracy, I would say yeah. that there have been some. Even if all of them are, are completely valid, that still maybe. 15, giving the most generous estimate of that number, and there are tens or hundreds of thousands of these Mm. men who aren't doing this. I think if you look at any kind of slice of demographic, whether it's a profession or a nationality or whatever, you'll find some percentage that go on to do horrible things. I think it makes a neat, tidy narrative, mm. an exciting narrative, maybe like a sexy narrative. <laughs> or, I don't think it's
0: sexy, but yeah, some sort of, yeah, well, an easy narrative. Sexy in the sense
1: of a, you know, sensational, yeah, and yeah. easy to sell, to say that, that this is the cause of it, but I really don't see that. And the evidence I have against that being the case, it's a long list mm. and it's, Multivariate. Yeah, I just think that no matter what one thinks, that is a reductive
0: and simplistic, overly simplistic way to look at that community. Do you think it's almost? I can't believe I'm even saying this. Do you think it's almost taboo to say incels, or the majority of you of incels that you've just said are non-violent? I mean, I said that on Twitter and I got pelters for it. So I feel like I feel like it's definitely not a mainstream narrative. No,
1: it's not. When I began the podcast, actually before even the first episode was released, I experienced a Twitter mob takedown, people speaking to my network, which I didn't finish this part of the story, but the reason I brought up the podcast that I liked at the beginning was because that's the network that hosts the show now. People were, were writing them to not release it and to basically cancel it, to use that term, before the first episode was even out. so Yeah, it's taboo. And I'm aware that now my network, my own echo chamber, and the people that ask me to speak, there's a selection bias there. These are people that agree with or are at least open minded to my perspective. So I don't experience as much of that or I don't notice it if I do. But absolutely. In the mainstream, incels are wholly reviled.
0: Yeah. So what would you say to people who say, actually, Nama, most of these incels are men? Who hate women, at the extreme end want to kill women, and have misogynistic and generally very sexist views. Is that the truth? Or is it a more nuanced picture? Plain devil's advocate here.
1: Of course it's a more nuanced picture. I mean, if you say that the community is misogynistic, I would say that's probably true. But if you speak to the members of the community, the individuals one-on-one. Not really. A lot of them are are men that have very little experience with women and that are just kind of echoing and parroting things that they hear to be shocking, to be edgy, to vent, to... Thanks for the pun. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But they would, and I know personally, and again, I'm aware that there's some sample bias here as well. The people that are willing to speak to me might represent a slightly different subset but I think it seems generally true that once they have the opportunity to speak to a woman or to spend time with a girl, they would drop all of this stuff in no time mm. for that. It's kind of like a sour grapes thing. Yeah.
0: Do you think some of them have, like, well, I'm asking you directly, do you think some of them have SEND or, you know, special needs, learning difficulties, social difficulties? So, for example, a neurological condition like autism or. They could be on the autism spectrum and maybe not have a severe example of it. Because if they do, then it's quite cruel to use incel as this term now. Because in school, Nama, in the UK, virgin baiting is a term I sort of use. If you were called a virgin by a girl or a boy, it's like the ultimate insult. You know, you can't come back for it, especially if it's the truth, really. And it was a common weapon, basically. And now I feel like it's sort of morphed into incel. And, you know, adults sort of seem to use it quite commonly on social media. Do you see a commonality there? Do you think it's making people quite cruel to this community or this population who actually might have a lot of learning difficulties or feel quite isolated from society and not from their fault? They might be born with it.
1: I think that's exactly right. Everything that you said is exactly right. I think it is virgin baiting. It's the same thing when people sort of tease incels and a lot of incels are people that were teased for that. Mm. in school you know and it just kind of continues now and then they found this term when you talk about social difficulties whether you know it's being neurodivergent or having mental health issues yes absolutely there are polls taken in that community some that have been done that are done internally we'll say in-house they were doing this even before i came along which i found fascinating and they get sample sizes that academics would only dream of like 500 600 respondents that ask about those conditions and northward of 80% have depression, northward of 75% have anxiety, Mm. something like 20% are diagnosed, formally diagnosed on the autism spectrum, which is staggering. Mm. It's 1% on the general population. And another 25% or so feel that they are probably on it, but don't have the diagnosis. You know, autism is complicated. It's a spectrum. If you're not very far on the spectrum, meaning when it's really obvious developmentally for toddlers and things, and you're just on what used to be called Asperger's Syndrome, which is now high-functioning autism, a lot of people don't end up getting a diagnosis for that. But I would say it's, I mean, the, the ones that I speak to individually which is hundreds at this point, it's so common. It's more than half. Mm. Uh, A lot of these attackers had it too, almost all of them. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. Can I ask you about the technical definition? Because as far as I'm aware, and speaking to William Costello, who you've had on your podcast... The technical definition is someone who hasn't had sex for longer than six months, I'm right in saying. So is the technical definition outdated? Because as I sort of put a provocative tweet out on Twitter, you know, during COVID-19, if we're going by the technical definition, all of us were incels. I mean, that's probably not true when you really dig deep into the political ideology of the term incel. So do you think the definition is itself quite outdated now or not?
1: Well, you know, this is a community that defines itself and that evolves very rapidly. It's an online community. There is no standards society. You know, it's just what the people who run the website or the subreddit or whatever decide. And the biggest forum, which is the incels.is, I speak to those admins of that a lot. Their criteria was six months or longer, but that's kind of arbitrary.
0: Yeah, sure. And when you started the podcast or when you sort of got your teeth into it and you started interviewing some of these men what did you discover or what surprised you the most would you say about the conversations you were having
1: they were completely surprising the first interaction I had with an incel that I I reached out to for the purpose of the podcast was um, I think Maybe I, I found them on Reddit or something, sent a just a message saying I'm doing this podcast about incels and was sent a 6,000-word tome, beautifully written, so relatable. I was crying reading it, like, oh, in the wow. wee hours of the morning about this man's experiences and double standard and the cruelty of his situation. Mm. And, yeah, I just... I find so many of them that I speak to so articulate and so relatable frankly I think that was surprising in the beginning also how how willing and not just willing but desiring they were to talk to someone
0: Mm. has the podcast changed your perspective on life
1: definitely not just my perspective it's changed my life in so many ways practically speaking in terms of what I do the fields that I'm involved in, the sorts of people I talk to. I'm speaking to, frequently consulting or advising with security forces and governments about this issue and learning so much about the phenomena of radicalization and fringe movements and all kinds of psychosocial issues that I didn't anticipate so yeah, it's really, it's changed my life drastically. And it's also just changed my perspectives very subtly. It's hard to even parse that because things have changed so completely. But yeah, mm. it's changed things.
0: You said to me off air, Nama, that suicide or, or suicide ideation or suicidality is something that's quite prominent in the in-cell community. And that's not surprising when a group of men go without love or sexual desire for a significant period of time. I spoke with a previous guest, Robin Hadley, who who said the quote that maybe we should stop thinking about prisoners as prisoners and start thinking about them as broken people. Do you think we almost have to change the narrative about how we have the conversation about incels in order to either provide solutions or just help them feel, I guess, like they have a place in society or they can rise and not become incels anymore?
1: Yes, that's exactly what we need to do. How can we not? I don't know how anyone expects things to change. If people are concerned about misogyny and concerned about violence against women and concerned about preventing rather Mm. mass shootings, I don't know how they think that, you know, if we just take a securitized approach, that's one thing, but obviously there is a root and an emotional core of these issues and people don't join fringe groups. I don't want to talk specifically about, you know, committing acts of violence because that, that is so rare in the community, but we'll just say develop antisocial rather than pro social sort of coping mechanisms if they feel included and if they feel like they have something to lose and that their life means something. These are people that don't have that. And it's also not just lack of romantic, or as many people think, sex for for six months. It's rarely that. Most of these men are virgins. They've never had relationships, overwhelmingly, most of them. Mm. And most of them also don't have friendships, really, in real life either. It's pretty rare that you find one that has... It's not rare, I would say, but it's less than, than common that they have perfectly kind of healthy social support systems Mm. in place
0: can i ask you a question i don't think you've maybe been asked before are there female incels and i guess this is not my perspective but i guess i'll throw it out provocatively if there were a community of female incels do you think they'd be treated differently to how these male incels are being treated
1: well, yes, they would be. So I am asked this a lot, you know, whether there are female incels. There's some dispute. <laughs> well, I don't, it, but not, as, not in as nuanced a fashion as you did. Mm. Most people just kind of ask the question. And I say that there is some dispute over that in the incel community. A lot of the men don't think that women can be incel. And I understand why they say it. There is a little community of what are called femcels. Right. They call themselves okay. this. But it's, it's a very different, it's very small, and it's a very different sort of typology. It's usually women that are a little older than, than the men. And well, they're certainly not treated the way the men are, that there wasn't a lot of bullying. And, you know, this is where I, I would say I agree with the incels. I think that for women, problems like this can be just as severe, but I think that it's not so much about an inability to get laid, frankly, mm. you know, just to put it bluntly. I do think that women probably much more easily can, if they want, than men. Mm. And that's not where they focus their grievances. It's more about relationships. So the women, the, the fem cells are kind of, I don't know, it's it's just different. It's, okay. it's a very different
0: group. I guess one of the main things why I wanted to speak to you... At- and Will and sort of give this topic a voice is that when I've been doing the research through listening to your amazing podcast Nama and talking to Will, a lot of these incels were bullied as children. Uh, I was bullied as a child and a teenager for nine years. Some of them have also been sexually abused. I was sexually assaulted when I was a child. So I have a huge amount of empathy and sympathy with them for precisely that reason. Do you think people know this? And if they did, do you think they'd be more empathetic?
1: I think that they often don't know by choice in a way. They're kind of willfully ignorant of that because they're being bullied now and mm. in, a, in a different way. They are the type that would be bullied and everyone knows that type.
0: I used um, to be it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
1: right. Well, that's something that, maybe give them some hope, but yeah, most of them, almost all of them were bullied at some point. I'd say bullying, we have a lot of awareness of bullying nowadays, but it still happens. (laughs) It's not as physical as often as it used to be, but sort of more psychologically cruel. And the majority of them were bullied and a lot of them were physically abused or sexually abused. A lot of them don't necessarily recognize physical abuse as such if it happened when they were children and if it was something that was maybe normalized in their families and in their cultures, which is common enough and don't like to talk about it or sexual abuse, but it is pretty common. Yeah. Mm. I think people, if they we're willing to even listen to anything about incels other than just, you know, how hateful and dangerous and violent they are. And if we're open to hearing that, then
0: yeah, it might make them reconsider. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, it makes me really sad. At time of recording, Nam, and this is the reason why you were given so many more interviews to talk about this subject. There was a very prominent criminal case in the UK, which brought the topic of incels Crashing into the mainstream is the phrase I would use. So that case for the listeners involved a 22-year-old man called Jake Davison. Jake went on a killing spree. He murdered his mother before leaving his home and murdered four other random people he didn't know. Lee Martin, who's 43, and his three-year-old daughter. Stephen Washington, who was a carer, and an artist called Kate Shepard. The vast majority of media coverage... Labeled Jake an incel and said he had a deep hatred of women. And in some circles, they used this to call for incels to be labeled terrorists. So, Nama, I want to ask you, because you are an expert on this subject, what's the truth here? Was Jake an incel or was he just a deeply disturbed and troubled young man?
1: Couldn't he have been both? I would say that if you went by the categorical definition, he would be an incel in the sense that he was a virgin at his age and this troubled him, but he didn't actually self-identify as one. And, you know, he actually went out of his way to, in the article that I wrote for The Unheard, I talked about this at length, you know, he had a complicated kind of relationship with the term and with the community in that he was sometimes protective of incels you could see in his posts. And he would say things like, incels or people like me is kind of relating to them but that's still making a distinction that he's not a part of this community and he was also involved in subreddits that were sort of anti-incel rather like anti-incel talk oh, right.
0: or about no no yeah, people know just, that do they <laughs>
1: No, they don't. And even with those facts, I've had people kind of attack me for what I say. It's like, but are we at a point where we're no longer considering what people actually define themselves? Does that not matter? If people are going to say that this ideology is what was responsible for the killing, then doesn't it matter that he didn't? How can you say someone's killing in the name of this thing if they denounce this thing and talk about how it's all? Bullshit. Yeah. The black pill is just bullshit and a waste of time. And there's a cognitive dissonance is there, isn't
0: there? There's a cognitive dissonance. Yeah.
1: Yes. He had, there were a lot of things going on. I also don't think that his attack, it didn't even really fit the profile of a school shooting, which a lot of them do. It's not obvious that it was mm. planned, really. It's not obvious that he had any targets in mind. It started with his mother. And as the police said, Right away, they ruled out terrorism, and they said this looks like a domestic incident that then spilled out onto the street. Now, police are trained to make these determinations. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the one they made. (laughs) And it sounds right to me. And yet, they were forced basically by public pressure to revisit whether or not this is an act of terrorism.
0: So a narrative was formed and it was being forced to make the police think think about that narrative or subscribe to that narrative. Is that what you're saying, essentially? Or at least to say, to say that they would consider it. Mm. So why do you think then people straight away jumped to the incel conclusion, despite the evidence that you gave around the killings and this really... I mean, broken is is an understatement, relationship with his mother, that the killings weren't based around incel ideology. Why do you think people jumped to that conclusion? Was it lack of education, or, or do you think it was an easy narrative, or, or something else entirely?
1: I think it's both of those things, in a way, and other things. I, you know, I think people are misinformed about incels, and we have all these self-styled experts now in the business of being experts on something, going around telling People and I'm I'm not going to name names, but there there are these individuals (laughs) who make appearances that are telling people what they know about incels, and it sounds really dark and really dangerous. And I think that it's a combination of well, this is what people are being told. It's also that when something like that happens, and I know that in your country that hasn't happened for over a decade, a mass shooting. Whereas in mine, it happens like nearly daily at yep. this point that people want an explanation and they want to be able to say, "Well, this happened because of this thing, and if we just stop this thing and deal with this thing, then we'll have done something about the problem, and we don't need to fear that it will happen to our children and our families." And that's kind of understandable. Mm. That they looking for the platonicity, the, the most simple kind of answer that can be swiftly and simply dealt with. I also think we live in a time where culturally we are very polarized and a lot of people are sort of being given narratives, not just about incels, but about other sort of groups. There's a culture war going on and the news is kind of cashing in on that with a lot of fear mongering. And on one side of the spectrum, this incel thing these angry young white men thing whether we talk about incels or the far right or neo-nazis and terrorists and all these things it's this boogeyman you know it's a group that's kind of not fashionable to be sympathetic to so i think that has something to do with it too there's kind of a moral panic about these issues i
0: think moral panic is the right term i listened to the episode that you did on jake davison and I began to feel incredibly uncomfortable because I began to at least have some level of sympathy for him prior to what he did. And I'm not excusing it at all, but he was using steroids, I believe. And he was just a clearly very troubled and disturbed and sad young man with a lot of mental health issues. Did you feel that sort of duality of uncomfortableness and condemnation at the same time? Yes,
1: I feel that a lot these days. Yeah.
0: My brain was telling me one thing and then I was reading the sort of media around it. It was like, oh, this is telling me another thing. But yeah, it was, uh, I almost felt a little bit disturbed by myself. I had the capacity to feel empathy for him. Mm -hmm. It's a very weird feeling.
1: Yeah, well, you know, as an aside, yesterday I was recording an interview with someone whose sister was killed in, I think, the first mass shooting in North America... No, it was the second. There was one that happened in the 60s, uh, Texas University. But in 1989, the first one after that was in Quebec in a university called L'Ecole Polytechnique by someone named Marc Lepine who killed more than 10 people. And so this is someone whose sister was killed in that shooting. And that was a very intense talk. And now he's doing some kind of a project about it. And the fact that he was open-minded enough to listen to my podcast and be not sort of immediately disqualifying of the ideas is pretty impressive. And I find that a lot with people who are victims of incidents like that, that they are more sensible than, than the rest of us. But he was talking about how he was researching this killer, Map-Lupin, and how he described it as I'm able to have, He he told me about the partner that he's working with said something like, do you, Feel like you could love this person the killer and he said I had a talk with myself and I realized I'm able to to love him up until 5 10 p.m on that day mm. so I feel that way a lot
0: yeah can I quickly talk to you about I guess the ideology behind the ideology if that makes sense so some of what goes on on incel forums revolves a lot around this concept of hypergamy and also the 80-20 rule. Now, I've had guests like Alex Kosciuta and William Costello articulate evolutionary psychology behind this on dating apps, not real-life interactions. I don't actually... I My personal opinion is that it doesn't exist in real life because things aren't computerised in the dating economy in real life. But when you consider, for example, that 90% of the Tinder base in the UK is male and 10% is female, does the concept have any truth in it? or is it all misogynistic hokum?
1: Is that true?
0: I was sent a video by, from a friend. I'll put the link in the show notes for the listeners who want to verify that, but I'm pretty sure it's true. Yeah.
1: Interesting. I don't think that it's all misogyny. I think that women are more selective. Probably we're evolutionarily hardwired that way for, I think, somewhat obvious (laughs) reasons in terms of Bearing child care. And so, yeah, I think what women are sort of the gatekeepers in a sense. And also there's a difference between men and women when it comes to just sort of sexual encounters, more casual ones and longer term relationships. I think men are more willing to have indiscriminate <laughs> amounts of the former than women probably. And then You know, hypergamy is not a term that incels came up with. You probably know. I think it first came around, you know, in colonial, British colonial India in the 19th century or something. And whether you say that this is uh, from social conditioning or evolutionary, the idea just that women are looking to sort of improve their station in life something like that mm. their social standing their yeah. social status or
0: sort of pair sideways or up sort of thing yeah yes exactly
1: yeah. i think that that's probably you know more true for women than it is for men and i think that you know if you want to take the social constructivist argument for that that's because women again care for the children
0: yep. investment you know yeah. at least yeah beginning
1: and for a long time didn't have agency financially you know it it was only through pairing that they could secure Mm. their financial social standing so i think that there is truth in it and then i think what's not true you know a lot of incels think that women are sort of more lookist is their word you know superficial like more judging on appearance i think that's absolutely not true yeah Uh, i agree with that
0: Yeah, <laughs> I think men are probably. Um, if we, if we men to are much more yeah, I
1: think yeah. so, yeah. But I think that dating apps kind of skew. Yes, a lot of the both sexes,
0: it I would say. To, yeah. Yes,
1: yeah. exactly. Because as we know, when it comes to to pairing, one of the most important factors is proximity, physical proximity. Or at least it has been up until now. Looks not money, not status, not brains, not personality, not anything, but how close you are to someone geographically, whether you work with them and spend a lot of time with them in an office every day, just these details. And so when you take that out of the equation and present this sort of comp card, which is what, you know, the terms models use just with your stats on it, your, your vitals, your measurements and whatever else you, you put on that small card and give the illusion of infinite swipe options mm. where it's like well, this one and then this one, you know, you can just kind of keep going. And we know now that some of these are fraudulent and aren't even real yep. people. And there's there's bots and the likes are fake to get people to spend time on the app so they can monetize mm-hmm. your time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I just think that's a game changer. And I think it's giving people,
0: yeah. you know- It's fucked up my generation, I would say. Social media is fucked up yes. Gen Z and dating apps has fucked up mine. And I'm back end. Mm -hmm. I'm basically back end millennial, so I was ninety four. So I think it's completely screwed up our our social skills. I think the pandemic has basically accelerated social interaction to Mm. completely dating apps. Now, I think it has skewed beauty standards for both men and women completely. Um, I think it's obviously accelerated ghosting. It's accelerated lookism for both sexes because you look at someone on a screen and you think they look good or not and then left or right. And just so many other things that I think it's just completely screwed up. So, I mean, in the sense that I have a lot of sympathy for incels when it comes to, I guess, the dating app sphere and their despair at it because a lot of, in quote unquote, normal people are despairing at it as well. I just want to ask um, a final question, Nama. So... When we spoke off air, we were having a sort of chat and we were recommending podcasts to each other. And you said, oh, one of my incels recommended this podcast. I found it really interesting that you said one of my incels. So when you use phraseology in that way, and obviously you are a mother yourself, do you feel almost like there's a parental sort of influence here? Like you're trying to help them as much as interview them?
1: Definitely. And there are many of them. I think actually one of my incels frail, pale, stale male noted that and pointed that out the first time he heard me doing it. And he said, Oh, you know, I noticed that. it was the way you said mine settles, I thought that was that was cute. <laughs> and yeah, I mean it's I think it's pretty obvious that I have kind of a a real with some of them I would say a real genuine friendship and with them as a whole, kind of like a protective and sort of maternal impulse. There are many that I talk to off the air that don't want to do the show Mm. but that I just chat to a lot many more than than those that do the show same here
0: there's a lot of people I speak to who don't want to come on the podcast or they write anonymously that I support so yeah I'm exactly the same
1: yeah yeah so it's that kind of you know the parasocial relationship but once it crosses that threshold to where you're directly messaging and it's not about the content it's not para anymore Mm. (laughs) it's just a social relationship but yeah I mean These are people that I think a lot of times are really lonely and just in general, they want to connect with someone. And the fact that I'm a woman and they not only are willing to, but like I said, want to talk to me. I think sometimes they they want to talk to someone outside of their echo chamber, outside of their bubble, who has a different perspective, but who understands and doesn't judge theirs Mm. and I I think that's natural so it's it's an interesting position to be in
0: we've talked about Nama the writer musician podcaster performer I want to talk about your own mental health journey now Nama so I ask all my special guests this question first can you tell me about your early life growing up in the US childhood teenagers and Looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you had? Who's the Nama we meet here?
1: Hmm. Well, I don't know if we, we uh, went over this before, but there are areas that I'm kind of careful to talk about because there's family and there's things like that. So I'm going to be a little bit vague in, in some ways, but I definitely had, I think my childhood here was pretty nice. It was pretty comfortable. I liked where I grew up. I had a best friend that lived down the street from me and she's still my best friend to this day. I rather liked school as a kid and I liked the activities that I did. I had a lot of kind of after school activities I was interested in. And then my mother was ill and she had a autoimmune condition called lupus, which is something that can take many forms. It's difficult to diagnose. It's difficult to treat. And I became aware of that at some point, probably in my preteen years around then. I oddly don't have a ton of memories from that time. We moved a few times. And I think that's part of the reason why, because friends of mine that stayed in the same place, there's kind of a continuity where you're around the people, you remain around the people that you were growing up with so those memories kind of come with you collectively so I don't remember exactly when but at some point I remember things getting kind of sad and kind of quiet and kind of dark in my home growing up and I spent a lot of time at friends houses or just away from the house because it had this kind of sadness and I didn't really know why but By the time I was in middle school, which is for us, you know, ages 12, 13, began to be aware that there was something wrong and that my mother was getting more and more sick and she was spending all day in bed and moods were very unpredictable. And then it became obvious that it was depression. And then I kind of took on that depression too, which I think is probably not uncommon no matter what kind of home you grow up in as like a teenage girl, but it's even more so if there's this darkness that's not being discussed and nothing was discussed. I don't remember having any conversations about any of that at home. And I have a brother who's less than a year older than me, Irish twins. And I think he was a lot more oblivious to this, but it was probably affecting him in a different way. And I was very social in school. And so I think I sort of blocked it out that way. He kind of dealt with it his own way. I don't know. Now, fast forwarding to now, I think it all actually affected him a lot more. Mm -hmm. He actually took it a lot harder. So I think that my mother's physical illness led to a mental illness and very, very bad depression. And she was also medicated and it was changing her body and her, her moods and just had all effects that I couldn't know about, but I think today probably would have been dealt with differently, even though it wasn't that long ago. The types of medications and everything were quite different at that time here Mm. in the US. So I think that that had a big effect and I remember some suicide attempts when I was in high school, and for some reason I feel like I was always the only one there. I was always the one that kind of found her. My my brother was sort of like protected from it somehow. It just didn't happen when he was around or something. By the time he was in college, so I was in my final year of high school, things got really bad and my dad had, had left and it was just me and my mom And like, I wasn't going to school a lot to sort of take care of her. My brother was away at college. That was a really tough time. And finally it did end with, she did complete suicide when I was a teenager at the end of that time, after I had gone away for some time and came back. So, you know, that was kind of a shaping event. I talk to a lot of people now that are suicidal and talk about suicide. And I obviously know firsthand what the impacts are to relatives of people who do that or even who just feel that and experience the ideation and everything. But it's not something that I judge with people. Yeah, I think after that happened, I kind of got this... It was almost sort of paradoxically like a carpe diem... Feeling. And that's when I moved to New York City and started in school and doing theater. And I think there was a feeling of, for me anyway, of this was kind of inevitable, or just that I couldn't see this actually getting better for my mom or resolving. It was obvious to me that that wasn't going to happen. And so it was just this pressure that just kind of built and built and built and built and built. And And then It was
0: gone. Hmm. Before we talk about what your mother was like as a person Nama and your sort of favourite memories of her you mentioned to me off air that loneliness was something that you struggled with when you were a teenager and I guess that, that must play into it having to support your mum and sort of being a, a carer almost at least and emotionally can you just tell me about how that fed into that depression you felt because you also said that you didn't have the exact same issues that incels had, but you said you did feel at least some level of commonality when you were slightly younger. Was that strictly sexual relationships or was it more linked to maybe your self-esteem or self-worth?
1: It was self-esteem and self-worth. It wasn't about sexual relationships for me. I mean, that wasn't the, you know, if anything, like my boyfriend when, when I was 16 years old and I had boyfriends and <laughs> I had one very long-term boyfriend that I thought I was going to marry and all of that. <laughs> that was something that helped. That was like a, an escape that I probably put more stock into because it was that. And it seemed like sort of a rescue from, from this sadness, this sort of feeling of inevitable darkness. But I think the loneliness, you know, now that I look back on it probably came from, and it's something that I, to this day, feel that deal with, with loneliness even when I'm not alone. And even though I like to be alone, there's just a feeling of being alone in something. And that's kind of what it was. I wasn't physically alone, but I felt alone in this journey in what I was carrying because it wasn't talked about at all. And I wasn't telling my friends about it. I don't I don't remember talking to my my friends or my boyfriend even about what was really going on maybe I did and I just don't remember but uh, I think that was probably where a lot of it came from I I felt sort of like an island and I think in my family we kind of collectively felt like that from other people and from each other too
0: can you tell me about the person your mother was and your relationship with her you you told me she was a visual artist so I guess you definitely got that talent from her then right
1: Yes, except that she was visual and I'm not. Um <laughs> I think I'm actually very not visually oriented, which is why film was not a great medium for me. Like when just I was the, <laughs> yes, the, the artist part then. Yes, just the artist part. But yeah, she was a painter. Uh she had worked briefly, I think, in advertising, which I did too, you know, and didn't realize I was kind of following her footprints until I, I think I talked to an aunt about it or something. And you know, she had been very full of life. She was a very open-minded person. You know, she was always interested in different cultures and different parts of the world. I remember she was very kind of sophisticated. I remember her being the way she dressed and she would bring home like French films for us to watch and she had very good taste and in the arts. She knew a lot about, she was just very cultured. I think she's someone that was a real light to be around whoever she was, her smile, and she was very funny, very engaging, very charming, and very warm when she was feeling good, when she was healthy. And sadly, that's something that I didn't get to see that much of after age 10, 11 or so. It became increasingly more rare for her to be in a good mood. And, you know, so I just, I remember glimpses of that. She also had that, I guess it's just a part of charisma, which is the ability to make the person that you're talking to feel like they are the only person in the world. You know, she had that quality and she was radiant. So when she turned her light onto you, it felt amazing. And I do have memories of her in that space just how sweet and funny and beautiful beautiful she was and talented I remember being a kid and my brother and I would ask her to draw things for us because she could in just minutes do an almost photo realistic sketch of a person or something from a book or something from imagination or or real life and yeah it was mm. wonderful she'd play she liked like to gardening and plants and she knew the names of all the flowers and she played classical music it's just a beautiful beautiful Mm. person
0: one of the main reasons you said that your mum's depression started to really take hold and control her life was the fact that you moved towns from a place where she had quite a strong social network and friendships Mm -hmm. to a place where She really struggled to establish new and sort of equally supportive bonds, I guess. Yes. She tried going online to find those connections, but she had limited success. A, how important is that for everyone listening to stave off loneliness and poor mental health? And B, do you think witnessing that loneliness was a reason or even spark for you to help incels in your adult life now?
1: Probably. I haven't really thought of that. So thank you. This feels like a psychoanalysis, one of the, the revelations. It really does. And I've been in uh, therapy before myself, and those moments are always kind of, huh, that's a... <laughs> I trauma
0: my things best. Things kind of click
1: there. <gasps> yeah, I, that, that's probably true. I always had a sense that that experience and, you know, what I carried with it had to do with my interest in the topic that I cover now and my my empathy for incels. But I think that that is a more, it's kind of a more direct connection and a direct kind of link back to my mother and not so much my struggles, though mine too, but, but also hers. Yes, loneliness is, I don't think we can overstate how important it is for people to have strong social ties. I think it's better if it's many and you can diversify. I think in the modern world that we live in, people are often far from their families of origin or from extended family. Like it might be a nuclear family living thousands of miles away from anyone else. So that kind of isn't a given. They have to be formed in the community that that you you live in whether it's neighbors or friends with common interests or whatever people co-workers a person cannot be alone and a lot of people that i speak to who are on the spectrum or who are introverts and sometimes claim that they prefer to be alone that may be true in one sort of very superficial way as in after spending some time with people <laughs> some time like to recover you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which i can definitely relate to but you're not going to feel happy and fulfilled if you don't have people to share your experiences good and bad with it's just the way we are made mm. as human beings and the, the internet is strange i i think that it can be really good for some people you know, I, I do feel that a lot of the, the connections that I've made through doing this podcast and other things are primarily online and they can come to be maybe not as I don't know, it's hard to sort of compare, but I would say certainly comparable in a way to IRL friendships. I, I don't think it's necessarily less real, but I think that it depends on the way they're made. I think when when it's only online and when it's only sort of text based and there's no voice chat. There's no face to face. I don't know. It's something that I think we, we all as as a whole collectively don't know yet. But yeah, loneliness is a it's a killer, literally. Mm. And I think in our modern life it's ubiquitous. You
0: know, so mm. many people struggle with it. Can I ask you about your grieving process? Because you mentioned there about the the Carpe DM mantra or attitude that you had. So what was that grieving process like? And in a way, was that carpe diem, maybe an escapism that you needed to get away from the place that you were living and then obviously go to New York?
1: I think I didn't really grieve until later. I think I sort of put it off. I think when traumatic events happen people's memories around that time gets a little bit fuzzy especially when it comes to sort of sequences and timelines so I don't remember exactly but if this is accurate but the way that I remember it it was very soon after her death that I moved to the city and I did something like uh I took a train into the city with like a small bag and Got on a bus because it was raining. I was going to walk around looking for work, but it was raining. So I got on a bus and got off at a random stop. And the first pub that I saw after getting off the bus, I went into and saw if I could get a job there and ended up working there for a long time. It was great. A really, really kind of neat experience to have at that time. And I think the grief kind of came out in very strange ways manifested in strange ways in my interpersonal relationships this is maybe where I can relate to incels some I didn't have you know an intimate relationship for a while after that happened a couple of years and I didn't feel very trusting of people I, I had definitely had a guard up all these things that I hadn't processed I think it was a while before I really spoke to family too you know I I did it occasionally but I basically lost touch with a lot of my family for for a little while also a couple of years and yeah I think that there was also a sense of feeling like I was overly relating with my mother and feeling like I was her and I was going to end up going down the same path for several years after that happened I felt that. And anytime I got close to being in an intimate relationship, I would feel that way and back away mm. from it. And then it was actually writing. It was actually a, a friend of mine. When I started with acting, you know, early on while I was still in school there in New York, I did uh, somebody's thesis film for film school and ended up working with that person again, the, the director of it, on a, a play that he did. I think he had encouraged me to write actually at the time. And I think I started to, and I wrote a lot, and a lot of it came out very kind of quickly and almost violently, and it felt really good. And I started writing about my mother and being almost cruel and like harsh in my writing about her and about the situation. I was maybe trying to sort of emulate the style of books I was reading at the time. I was still always reading a lot. And it was, I, I don't know. I think that was something that was very cathartic for me. After doing that, things began to feel like they started to settle. And my life began to take a more, had more structure to it. I got back in touch with my friends from growing up who I hadn't talked to in a long time. I stayed in one apartment for more than six months and I began to pursue my creative things more seriously and I got into a relationship again and it wasn't as chaotic. It was very chaotic for a while and I sort of enjoyed the chaos, but it was definitely kind of like a four-year period of just escapism. I was also drinking a lot. Mm. when I was working at the the bar yeah and then I started going to therapy I, I tried going to therapy for the first time when I was like 22 or so and maybe went for a few months and then again a couple of years after that again for kind of a short time after I moved to Los Angeles was the first time that I had like a long actually stayed with it for a while and it was incredibly helpful.
0: The suicide happened 17 years ago Nama and to be honest the mental health conversation was in a completely different universe back then to what it is now were you supported at all after it happened and I guess as well you must have heard quite stigmatizing comments whether that be from people in your community or just anyone really about her death did you experience any of that and did you almost by the sounds of it internalize some of that stigma yourself
1: I would say that I wasn't supported in any formal way afterwards because I was out of school. I don't know if it would have mattered if I was in, in school at that time. I don't know if they would have offered something like that. So no, not really. I had some friends that made some recommendations and that were kind of there, but not really. And I didn't hear stigmatizing comments about her specifically because her death is still not... it. It wasn't recognized as suicide. Oh. Yeah, in my family, people still don't acknowledge that. Very recently my my dad kind of admitted that he knew that that's what it was. I I tried talking about it with my brother who I would would have thought would have been more open to it being close to my age. And he just, he was like, I don't stop. I don't wanna talk about this, I don't hear about it. So yeah, I'm not able to talk about it with anyone in my family really and have mm. never been unfortunately i think that is probably that... would have been helpful but i think that that is the result of what the stigma would have been what they yeah. feared it would have been how difficult has couldn't... that
0: been not to be able to talk to even family members about it i mean friends can i guess have a, a certain level of empathy but to not be able to talk, to talk and to just, yeah just yeah, yeah and just share even just share positive memories as well yeah
1: at this point I know that that's (laughs) that's the case. So it's hard for me to say how difficult it has been and easier for me to say how helpful it would be if it weren't the case. Mm. I have wanted to do that. So yeah, the inability to have those conversations has been really difficult. It's really hindered my ability to process this. And that ties back kind of to the loneliness thing. I feel like I had to do that alone whereas I think if there were an ability to have family conversations about it then it wouldn't have felt like such a lonely
0: journey. Mm. As you've navigated teenagers and then adulthood after her passing and I'm sure there have been moments have there been any moments where you've spoken to her or you wished she was there to celebrate an important moment like you know I guess your daughter's birth or something artistic or do you think she's always there
1: yeah I don't know I struggle with that sometimes because of course I wish that she were there especially my own daughter being born and the artistic achievements both you know I think she would have been someone that would have really appreciated all of those things and those life milestones certainly more than anyone else in my family. <laughs> Most, no one else in my family even has any idea what I do for a living. <laughs> they just don't really get it. They're like, oh, yeah, really, that's, that's good. You know, I saw that you were on the news. Um, <laughs> I don't know anything about it. I think she would have uh, gotten it. So, yeah, it's it's really tough, and I like to believe that she's there. Most of the time I do, but there are some times that I feel like I want to feel more of something from her, some kind of presence and I don't and it's, you know, it's tough.
0: You're 35, if you don't mind me disclosing your age on a podcast. Yeah. And have clearly achieved so much in life. You're helping people in great distress, you're giving them a voice, you're an accomplished writer. If your mum was listening to this podcast, what do you think you would say to her and what do you think she would say to you?
1: Hmm... Huh. Well, one, I'm sorry if my talking about you and your illness and your death bothers you. It shouldn't. It's nothing to be ashamed of. I can tell you now mm-hmm. as we've uh, matured as a society about these things, mm. you know, you were struggling with things and I wish that you had had more support too um, mm. to help you go through them. And, uh, there were a lot of people that loved you and I wish you knew that, um, my baby loves you and sometimes I don't know if you ask me what she would tell me or what I would tell her and I'm doing more of the latter but you know I basically I just wish that you were here to meet my daughter and she would love to meet you too but we're not mad at you because we understand that things happen Mm. um and I don't know what she would say in response but I think I think it would be something that would
0: Mm. be I think she'd be proud of you, Nama. I think she'd be proud of you. Thanks. Can I reflect on your journey a little bit now, Nama? Please. So if you could go back and talk to that 17-year-old Nama who was struggling to process the loss of her mum or maybe the 13-year-old Nama in middle school who was struggling to fit in at school, What would you say to her, knowing what you do now?
1: Hmm. It all gets better from here. Every year is better than the one before. Don't think that any of this is forever. Don't be so hard on yourself or other people. (laughs) I'll leave that in. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And yeah, trust your instinct. And yeah, you're safe now.
0: Nalma Cates, thank you so, so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast.
1: Thank you. Feels like a, you know, I owe you you a a bill (laughs) for a session.
0: I get that a lot. (laughs) Sure you do. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thanks to Nama for being my special guest on this episode for her honesty in talking about such a traumatic event in her life and for letting me check in with her not just about suicide but about incels and I hope we have provided a nuanced and holistic perspective that I hope has educated a lot of you listeners and maybe surprised a few of you along the way. I will sign us off by saying... Thank you to all the Venters who tuned into this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you want to support us further, give us a five-star rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to support us further and like what we're doing, consider supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com venthelpuk or you can visit our GoFundMe. I also forgot to say I will chuck all the links to... The Incel Project and Nama Social Media in the show notes. We hope to check in with you again very soon, and remember, guys, it's always okay to okay. vent.